Welcome to the Mediate.com podcast with Veronica Kramer. Well, hello there, everyone, and welcome to another great episode of the Mediate.com podcast. I'm Veronica Cravener, your host, and today I'm thrilled that our guest is Julie McFarlane. And just by way of background, Julie is a researcher, mediator, and educator. She's a distinguished university professor and professor of law emerita at the University of Windsor. She's also held numerous visiting appointments, including at the City University of Hong Kong, the Kroc Institute of International Peace Studies at the University of Notre Dame, the University of Sydney, and the University of New South Wales. Julie now writes, speaks, and lobbies on a range of social justice issues. And I'm really looking forward to today's conversation. Today, Julie is with us to talk about why mediators need to stop and think hard about facilitating NDAs and settlement agreements. And I should share, she's also got a really interesting article actually by the same title that was recently published on the mediate.com podcast. So if you have not checked that out already, you definitely should. So with that, Julie, welcome to the mediate.com podcast. I'm so excited to hear, have you here today. Lovely to be here, Veronica. Well, so I want to share with our listeners, um, you and I actually have a place in common. Uh, so when I was looking over your website in preparation for today's podcast recording, I saw that you spent some time teaching at the University of Notre Dame. And yes. I'll share with, and yeah, and I'll share with our audience. Um, that's actually when I, where I went to college. And I understand that, you know, based on the timing you and I very well could have been walking around on the same campus at the same time and just not knowing each it. other. Yeah, 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 absolutely. So it's a, it's a, it's a small world after all, right? It is. It is. Yes. And the Kroc Institute was uh, was a really interesting experience for myself and my partner Bernie Mayer. We were both appointed there at the same time. Well, good, good. I'm glad. Well, so so let's get to it. I know. Um, you were so kind to send me some uh, websites and links to articles and information about non-disclosure agreements. And um, I'll say- I probably say, overwhelmed I, you, I'm afraid. <laughs> there's, quite a, there's quite a bit here. I seem to be producing this um, quite prolifically at the moment. So I hope it was helpful though, Veronica, for preparation purposes. Absolutely, very helpful. And um, you know, I feel like I've really had kind of my eyes opened and a shift in awareness. And so- you know, uh, I'm ready to learn. I'm ready to learn, right? And I'm, I'm sure our listeners are too. So, um, you know, can you tell us just kind of in general about non-disclosure agreements, about, you know, the types of terms that you're seeing and just sort of your work in general? Okay, well, thank you. And, and thanks for this opportunity. It really only occurred to me, to be honest, quite recently that I wanted to reach out to the mediation community with whom, of course, I've been so very involved for so many decades as, as a mediator myself, and to talk to them about what I have learned in the last couple of years about non-disclosure agreements. First of all, just to make sure that we all know what we're talking about here, um, non-disclosure agreements actually began in the 1980s and they came out of the tech bubble. As so many new tech companies started up, they were developing um, exciting new innovations, software, platforms, 
And as you can imagine, with a new industry, people would be moving around between companies. And of course, there was some concern that they would take the company's intellectual property with them and share it with a competitor. So I think it's really important for people to understand that was the origin of non-disclosure agreements. Um, in fact, as I describe it in one of the pieces that I've written, um, it was a good idea. It seemed to make sense to protect intellectual property, but it has evolved over the years into something that I feel is a very bad idea. So given that was the beginning, Veronica, what we've seen happen since then, and I, I can't give you an exact pinpoint on dates, but my best guess at the moment is this is something that's happened in the last five to eight years is that having originally been there to ensure that people did not share trade secrets, let's call them, they have now evolved so that trade secrets appear to include everything bad that might happen to somebody at a workplace. So we're now seeing non-disclosure agreements very, very commonly used. They are basically a default in any kind of settlement discussion in relation to uh, a workplace issue, be that harassment, bullying, uh, discrimination of various different kinds, um, any kind of misconduct in the workplace. So I think what people mostly associate these with in terms of what the media has written about is sexual harassment cases. Um, for example, all of Harvey Weinstein's victims ended up signing NDAs to protect him, not to protect them, but to protect him. And in fact, my partner in the campaign we're about to launch is Zelda Perkins, who was the first person to publicly break her Weinstein NDA. But in fact, as mediators know, non-disclosure agreements and their first cousin, uh, non-disparagement agreements, are now a default in all kinds of different negotiations these days, not just in the employment field. Um, they come up in product liability settlements, they come up in personal injury settlements, really anywhere where one party has something that it's very important to them to hide. I feel very strongly that as mediators who, after all, are making our pitch to people as we are offering you a place where you can speak up, where you can talk about what's happened to you in a human way, that to be facilitating agreements in which people end up agreeing to be silenced forever, because another thing to be noted about non-disclosure agreements is they are indefinite, they are forever. They are also often used to restrain people from talking to even their family and friends or a personal therapist. So people end up leaving an employment position or settling on some kind of injury that has been done to them along with being told you must, 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 and of course this is just the dynamics of bargaining, we know that as mediators, but must means must to most parties, you must sign an NDA in order to get a settlement. Yeah, and that's, you know, all that is really eye-opening and, and um, I, I was surprised, you know, when we first talked how you mentioned that you know, one of the terms that you see in these agreements is preventing people from talking to family, friends, or even um, professionals like therapists, right? I mean, 
Right. That that's that I was pretty surprised to. That's very standard that. now. That's very standard. And of course, what's really, you know, what we know as mediators, and you don't need to be legally trained to know this, is that it's unenforceable. I mean, how can you possibly follow somebody around with a video camera for their whole life, making sure they don't talk to their family and friends? But what's really interesting, Veronica, and I think mediators really understand this, is that people believe and are in fear of any kind of breach. They are told that if they break any part of this, even if it's just a private conversation with somebody, that they will come after them. And there have been cases where settlement agreements, compensation that was paid, have been taken back from people because they have been found to have broken an NDA. Hmm. So I'm thinking in terms of, you know, I'm reflecting back on like my basic mediation training. And one of mm. the things that was coming to mind as, as you were sharing this information and also just in reading some of the articles that you sent to me is, you know, I remember in my basic mediation training, my trainer telling all of us in the group, you know, one of, one of the principles of, of being a mediator is, is do no harm. Right. But then you've also got this other principle of, well, empowering party self-determination. So I guess as we think about kind of the role of the mediator, I mean, how do you, how do you square those two things as it comes to this issue of, you know, parties trying to negotiate non-disclosure agreements? Right. Well, I mean, that's a really good question, Veronica, because I think it raises one of the fundamental mis- understandings that people have about NDAs. Um, we know when you bargain between two parties, when we as mediators facilitate that bargain, they can agree to all kinds of different things. And of course, what one party agrees to give to one side doesn't have to be reciprocated by the other. Obviously, the parties need to be content that they have enough of what they had on their list when they first went into the settlement discussion, but it doesn't have to be exactly the same. If I agree to give you a case of wine, you don't have to agree to give me a case of wine back, although it would be very nice, I must say. <laughs> so in the case of NDAs, what I think gets misunderstood here is that it's perfectly possible to negotiate one-sided confidentiality. So for a victim of, let's say, sexual harassment, who wants very much to remain private, which is the case for many people, they can easily negotiate keeping their, I say easily, it seems perfectly reasonable for them to put forward um, in the bargaining that they want to remain um, identity protected. But they don't have to provide the same for the other side. And I think that what happens in mediation, and I think this is crept in, I don't think that there's any intentional doing harm here. I think this has just been a kind of a creeping practice is that mediators have started to accept what many uh, defendant party lawyers will say, which is, we're not going to give you confidentiality unless you give us confidentiality back. Now, of course, that's just a bargaining mechanism. You know, we see fashions in bargaining and mediation all the time. And I think that it's very important for mediators to think about their role here as clarifying that there is a distinction between both sides being protected. Because obviously what happens if an NDA is given to the perpetrator is that they're able to go on to another workplace and continue the same behavior. And we see this happen all the time. So 
it's not about you can only get confidentiality on one side if you give it to the other. In fact, it could be something that protects a victim and that that is what victims often want. That's party self-determination. I've talked now to dozens and dozens and dozens of people who've signed NDAs as victims. Not a single one of them, not a single one, Veronica, would, would do that a second time. Every single one of them regrets it. And every single one of them was told, and they were told this by their own lawyer and the lawyer on the other side, but it was never contradicted by the mediator. And this is where I think we have a responsibility. They were told that they could only get confidentiality for themselves if they agreed to give it to the other side. And of course, that's not the case. Okay. And I guess that was going to be my next follow-up, but it, it sounds like you might've answered that already. I was curious. So it sounds like most of the, the parties that you've talked to where they've signed it and then later regretted it, it sounds like they were represented by counsel. Yeah. Some of them are, some of okay. them are, certainly not all of them. Okay. Um, and I think that one of the things that has become a sort of a mantra um, amongst many of the plaintiff lawyers, the victim lawyers in, in these cases, is that an NDA will help their party move on. This is, this is what we hear all the time. This is what people are told all the time. This will help you move on. But, you know, it actually doesn't because it means that people who've signed an NDA can never forget about the fact that they are now under what they see as, you know, a legal gagging order not to speak about what happened to them and they worry about slipping up and they worry about the consequences for them if they do slip up or if they tell somebody who tells somebody else who tells somebody else and then it gets into the public somehow. So I think that this idea of um, a lawyer being the person who will always protect the victim from this, I think, very exploitative bargain um, isn't necessarily going to work. And of course, mediators see this you know, not infrequently in other examples, we've all mediated cases where we felt perhaps that an attorney on one side isn't giving their client all the options or the full picture. And it's a very um, complex thing to try to ensure that you don't come between a lawyer and their client, but at the same time to ensure that the client is making a fully informed decision. And I mean, I'm, I've had this experience not with NDAs, but I've had this experience in my own mediation practice in the past where I've needed to, for example, take the client and one lawyer into separate caucus and say to the lawyer, I'm not feeling that your client really fully understands their options here. Could you just talk about X or Y or Z? Um, and I think that you know, this is something that we we have to deal with. We, we deal with all the time. And it could be, you know, just to give you an example, Veronica, it could be as simple as, has your lawyer talked to you about what the costs of trial will be? And the answer is often no. <laughs> that seems pretty important. And in this case, I think it would be important for a mediator to say, has your lawyer talked to you about the possibility of a one-sided confidentiality agreement as an option that could be put on the table here? Okay. Yeah. I mean, I think, yeah, I think I'm following you. So, I mean, it sounds like what you're saying is, I mean, really it's prudent for mediators that if you're going to mediate these types of cases that you really ought to know kind of 
what are the, the typical types of terms, um, what's going on in this area so that you know what types of follow-up questions to ask, right? Like not right. that you're trying to advocate one way or the other, but just so that you know what questions to ask. Right. And, and that, I mean, we, we do also know that we want to make sure that the parties are always fully informed. I mean, I think that's a, a basic self-determination principle, which is why, of course, negotiating where one side doesn't have a lawyer and the other side does is always especially complicated for mediators. And, and of course, that happens as well. But I think that in relation to this issue, as in relation to all the other examples you could come up with, it's important for mediators to ensure that people fully understand that an NDA is indefinite, that an NDA will enable the person who has harmed them to um, have their records um, erased. Um, this, you know, I went through an example of this at my own institution, at my own university, where the university agreed um, with a faculty member who was being terminated for um, years of harassment and intimidation of students. They agreed in the settlement agreement to um, eradicate all the personnel files that related to the many, many complaints against him. And I think that that's the kind of thing that if somebody's really making an informed decision about the consequences and there are consequences therefore for other people, I think it's a mediator's responsibility to ensure that they understand those consequences. Yeah, absolutely. Now, I want to just make one other point, Veronica, that I think is also going to be perhaps occurring to mediators as they listen to this, which is the other area in which we're seeing non-disclosure agreements being used is not just as the outcome of settlements where they are now, uh, as I say, a default. Some people, some lawyers have estimated to me that you see them in 95% of civil settlements these days, but they are also there at the outset. And so I was recently involved in a mediation um, as a party, not as a mediator, and the terms of mediation, which of course is what we've all used for years and years to ensure that the parties understand amongst other things, that anything that the other party says in mediation will be inadmissible if there's a future trial. And that's obviously an important principle to ensure people can speak freely. But those terms of mediation, the ones that I saw um, quite recently, and I believe um, are really quite standard now, included a non-disclosure agreement that would have prevented me, I didn't agree to sign this, even saying that I had been in a mediation. Um, would have prevented me talking to anybody else that I knew outside of that room about the fact that a mediation even took place. And I think that, you know, when you think about the ways in which internal complaints processes these days at workplaces frequently have a mediation component, which is a good thing, um, we're also seeing these pre-mediation non-disclosure agreements creeping in there so that in order to participate in a mediation, you're required to sign a gagging order. Now, that's quite different from saying, I agree that I won't use anything said by the other party um, in a subsequent trial. And it's totally improper. I mean, I was absolutely shocked when I saw these terms and I raised it with the mediator and asked, you know, has there been some new case law in this particular jurisdiction that makes you think that this is 
necessary or it would even be in upheld because the terms said that the non-disclosure agreement would be enforced by the by the court in the jurisdiction so it was a very threatening kind of clause and there was no case law it was just there because increasingly um defendant lawyers want something like that to just to make sure that nothing is ever going to be said about the fact that even a complaint was made in the first place. And we're beginning to see some data now that suggests that this is, this is discouraging people from making complaints and from going into mediation because they know that they're going to get gagged. Hmm. So yeah, I mean, all that is, all that's really eye-opening. So I mean, I'm just I think thinking. It's shocking. Don't you think it's yeah. shocking? I mean, I think this is so far away from the good that we're trying to do here. Um, and I think, as I say, it's just crept up on us. So I'm kind of trying to ring an alarm bell here. Yeah. So, I mean, I'm thinking in terms of, I think you mentioned a little bit ago, 90% of civil settlements have this type of non-disclosure language that you've referenced. So I'm thinking in terms of a mediator, you know, we want, we want people to have good information, right? Because we can do that to the extent we've got information, we can give information, we can't give legal advice, but we can give information. So how do we walk that fine line between giving information to folks so that they've got it so that they can make informed decisions, but then not risking that, you know, the other party is going to think that we have some sort of bias. How do we walk that fine line? Well, to me, what I've been describing um, is information. It's not legal advice. Um, okay. It's information about what an NDA means. And, I, you know, I would actually go a little bit further, Veronica, and say that, you know, mediators are experts at what they do. And mediators have some, um, have some power in this situation. And I think that it is beholden on mediators and people in the mediation community if they are, for example, invited to become part of, commonly enough, a roster for, um, let's say it's mediations over disciplinary proceedings for a professional group, professional regulator. I'm sure lots of people listening, uh, and I myself, have, have done this kind of work in the past. If the standard terms of mediation to um, address whatever the disciplinary issue is, include a term like the one that I have just described that says that people can't speak about the fact that they've been in mediation to anybody, family or friends, um, and that, that, that this decision, uh, any breach of this will be enforced by their local court. I think we should be saying that's not okay. You don't need, this is an overreach. People don't need to be gagged coming in. And in fact, it's going to be discouraging them from coming into mediation at all. The only thing you need is an understanding that on the part of the parties, and again, I would say this is information, it's not advice, that you can't repeat something the other side says at a trial. That's what's beholden on us to say. Um, but it's not beholden on us to gag people. And I think we should be standing up and saying to um, organizations that want to use these kinds of pre-mediation clauses that we're not going to facilitate them. Okay. And yeah, I'm, I'm thinking too, I always find, like at least when I'm mediating, 
when I'm giving information, it's always easiest for me to feel like I'm giving um, information and not advice when I'm able to kind of like cite to something else. Mm. So for, you know, for our listeners who you know, want to feel empowered to give folks information about, about this topic, you know, what sort of, what sort of resources would you refer them to, whether it's your website or elsewhere, like where can they, where can they get that information? Well, there's, there is more and more discussion of this in okay. the public now, which is a good thing. And in fact, um, I'm working with Zelda Perkins, who I mentioned before, to launch an international campaign aimed at legislators, because I think that the way that we resolve this problem is through legislation that would restrict the way in which non-disclosure agreements can be used and bring them back to their original purpose for protecting trade secrets. Um, and we will have a website that will be up and running uh, with a lot of information, um, a lot of um, both text, but also infographics, videos, information for people who are thinking of signing an NDA and, and want to you know, be able to get a picture of, of what this would mean. And that will be information that will be publicly available um, in September. In the meantime, my own website, Prof Julie Mac. Um, has a whole page, as, as you've seen, Veronica, with a lot of blogs and um, podcasts and background on NDAs and the ways in which they're being used. I've also written a piece for um, the Cardoza Law Journal, uh, which they were kind enough to publish a couple of years ago, that looks at the evolving case law in the United States, because the case, the, the United States is actually, you know, in some ways ahead of a, a lot of other countries. There have been individual states now, for example, California just last week, that have legislated so you cannot use an NDA um, or a non-disparagement order um, to gag people. In, in California, it applies to sexual harassment and racial discrimination and harassment, those two, those two particular contexts. Um, so you'll also see if you do a quick a quick Google search that there is there is some legislation out there. It's beginning to go to other states, including New Jersey, Ohio, Oregon. Um, and the article that I'm mentioning, which is on my own website for the Cardoza Law Journal, um, that talks about the case law that is is pushing this in, in many ways because courts have found that where somebody is moved to another, in particularly a particular a public institution, so perhaps a public university, a school, or a hospital, having um, committed some misconduct at their previous employment, that that harms the public, which it obviously does, and they have been striking down um, NDAs in those circumstances as void. Wow, and I and I didn't realize that there has been change in, in legislation as well. Um, I mean, yes. that's an even further plug for mediators, like you know, to the extent that you're mediating. Oh yeah, this isn't just my idea. There's yeah, a lot yeah, of this is thinking about this. <laughs> yeah, 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 and also just to just to the importance of 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 being aware of what's going on in the field that you're mediating. Like you know, I'll, I'll share by way of background. I might have shared it in other. Um, episodes that we've done, but, you know, I, I'm trained as a facilitative mediator, right? So, I mean, as a facilitative mediator, you know, I'm, I'm not evaluating um, any the merits of anyone's legal claims or anything. And so I've noticed over the years that, you know, 
when I've talked to some other facilitative mediators, like sometimes I've had mediators, you know, say things like, well, you know, you don't necessarily need to know everything about the subject matter because, you know, you're not making a decision, you're not providing advice. But I mean, this episode is really the counter argument to that is, hey, you really do need to know what's going on in that field, like what the trends are so that you can provide good information so that you can refer that's people to resources. It. Yeah, I right? think that's so that a really good way of putting it. And, and I think, you know, the other thing that we do know now, because we have huge amounts of research, you know, you mentioned in your introduction of me that I'm a researcher and that's the work that a lot of people listening to this will know of mine that I've done a lot of empirical evaluation of mediation programs over the years. And what is really clear from years and years now of research um, with clients on their experiences of mediation is whether you are facilitative or whether you are evaluative, they don't want the mediator to be passive. The mediator okay. isn't just a messenger. And of course, you know this, Veronica, and the best facilitative mediators know this too. It's not just a matter of carrying information back and forth. It's a skillful job. I mean, a monkey could carry information back and forth. <laughs> right. And so it's about, you know, thinking, do the people in this room, if you're in caucus, do they really understand and have they fully fleshed out all the different ways in which they might approach solving this problem and obviously you don't tell them what to do and as a facilitative mediator which is which was my practice as well you don't give them legal advice but there are many many kinds of questions that a mediator can ask to help people flesh out what it is that they're really getting make sure that they understand what it is that they're bargaining for and to think about what all those different options might mean for them in the long term because I think you know, the consequences, long-term consequences of an NDA are, as I have now seen, so harmful to people that it's really serious. It's, it's, it's something that we need to take really seriously as mediators. Often at the time, people will settle and they'll accept an NDA because they just want it all to be over with, especially if something has happened to them that was traumatic. But then they'll realize years later that they are still bound, that they're still gagged. And that's when I start to hear from people. Uh, it's very interesting. Most people only really start to realize what it is they've signed and the consequences of the NDA um, sometime after making that agreement. And I think as mediators, it's our responsibility to make sure they understand then, not later. And that's a great point in that, that really reminds me of, um, you know, you mentioned at the outset, we have to do more than just you know, carries, carry pieces of paper back and forth, right? right? That, you know, even when parties are represented and, and they have that advocate, that advisor there, not to forget the importance of being that impartial third party who can really ask those devil's advocate type questions right. to both sides, right? Because really- yes. I mean, it's in both sides' best interests that everyone makes a fully informed decision so that you've actually got an agreement that is workable, that's lasting, and that doesn't do any harm to anyone, right? Correct. Yeah. Yes. Well, Julie, this has been this has been a really, like I said, really eye-opening um, episode well, and, and really eye-opening. Yeah. And, and you know, I, I, I do fully expect and I hope that we will have a debate 
in our community about this and that you know people will share their experiences because i i'm fairly sure that there are going to be quite a lot of people out there who've been troubled by watching this happening gradually increasingly creeping into mediation and i think it's really important that we you know we surface the issue and we have a discussion about it and think about how as a field um while we're still trying to make progress with legislative change and at the moment um i would just share with you veronica and the listeners that i'm working on legislation in ireland england and wales um canada and in victoria australia so this is really starting to move um you know we might be in a situation in a few years time where NDAs in this context are off the table anyway, so we don't need to worry about them anymore. But in the meantime, I think it's very important for us as a professional community with integrity, with in, in, in commitment to pe people speaking up and being self-determining. I think it's very important that we have a debate about this, and I would be delighted to talk further to anybody who, um, who had thoughts and comments about what we've talked about today. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, that's a good segue. I mean, you know, to the extent that our listeners want to continue the conversation with you, if they want to learn more about your work, more about your upcoming campaign, how can they do so? Well, um, you can find me very easily on the internet by Googling me, or you can go to Prof. Julie Mack, which also has an email on it. Um, and the new campaign um, website will be live on the 14th of September. Uh, and I will be on social media talking about it. And um, I expect that this will have quite a bit of, of, of media coverage at that point. Yeah, yeah. Well, Julie, thank you so much for being on the episode today. Um, again, I mean, you've, you've really helped me to have a shift in awareness and I imagine you know, many of our listeners too. So I really appreciate you being here today. Well, I, I'm very grateful for the opportunity, Veronica. Thank you. All right, friends. Well, that wraps up another episode of the Mediate.com podcast. We'll talk to you next time. This podcast was brought to you by Mediate.com. For more information about Mediate.com's programs and content, please visit our website at www.mediate.com.